You're listening to the Visualizing War podcast. We are thrilled to welcome you to these two special episodes titled Visualizing Strategy. With this two-part roundtable, we want to bring together voices with diverse perspectives on crisis simulations and war games to facilitate a conversation about what it means to visualize, that is, to represent and imagine strategy. Hello, my name is Philippe Fulcher-Cruvenel. And my name is Katerina Burkedal. And we will be your hosts for these two special episodes. Today's episode will explore the cultural impact of war games in history, shedding light on how our understanding of strategy is formed through their visualization. We are thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Aggie Hurst, who is Senior Lecturer at the Department of War Studies at King's College London, Dr. Alice Koenig, who is Senior Lecturer and Co-Lead of the Visualizing War Project here at the University of St. Andrews, and Aristides Foley, who is a PhD candidate at the School of International Relations, also here at the University of St. Andrews. And before going any further, I would like to extend our very sincere gratitude to them for sharing their time with us today. I can think of no better guests to explore with us the theme of this episode, which is the cultural legacy of wargaming and the body politics of playing war. Thank you all so, so very much for being here to talk to us about this very, very exciting topic. In this episode, we will be delving into the historical, cultural and political aspects of wargaming. Studying war games allows us to better understand both the scope and fog of war, as well as giving us a more nuanced grasp on the processes by which war and military strategy is visualized and drilled into the martial and civilian body. That is, how war games work as cultural transmitters of ideas about war and strategy. In episode one, Wargaming in a Brave New World, we discussed the use and challenges of war games and crisis simulations in the contemporary world. But war games are not a new phenomenon. They have been with us in one form or another from the ancient world. In episode one, our guests mentioned not much having changed fundamentally about how we conduct war games in the past century. But what about the past millennia? We can learn much by understanding how we did things before and how that differs from or stayed the same as what we do now. How has the idea and form of war games traveled over time? What is and what was their purpose? I want to turn first of all to you, Alice, to ask you, what did war games look like in the ancient world? What was their purpose and function? So just before I talk about war games, I'll just preface my remarks by saying that I'll be talking mostly about the ancient Mediterranean world, so mostly Greek and Roman culture. And there's really nothing directly equivalent to what we think of as war games today. But of course, as you say, Katerina, people have always played with war or sort of gamed war in, in some ways, and perhaps more so in societies where war was more immediate, more of a regular reality. So in the ancient world, war gaming happened in a range of forms from actual physical games for entertainment to more theoretical exercises in, in visualizing war or practicing war and practicing tactical maneuvers and so on. So if we go right back to the Bronze Age and the Trojan War, or at least how we remember the Trojan War through Homer's epic poem, the Iliad, which was written in around the eighth century BC, in that poem, you can see a really strong link between war and athletic games. So there's a real tradition in ancient epic poetry of telling lots of bits of battle and then actually having a kind of pause, a sort of respite in the narrative where you look at the funeral games for a particular warrior. So in book 23 of the Iliad, for example, we have the funeral games for the warrior Patroclus. And, and you get this in lots of other epic poems as well. 
that bit of the narrative is in some ways a respite from war, but also very much an opportunity to reflect on war. Because as various people have said, George Orwell most famously perhaps, sport is sort of war minus the shooting, or sport is war in another form almost. And so in ancient Greek athletics, for example, there was lots of spear throwing and weapons training in gymnasia. Athletic contests are very much about promoting competition, seeking glory. We actually know that some athletic victors in the ancient Greek world led their cities into battle and they were the sort of these totemic characters who were thought to sort of bring good fortune, partly because they were sort of charismatic leaders. So there are lots of ways in which in storytelling about war, but actually in real practice, sport, athletic competition and so on overlapped with preparations for warfare and also really helped to instill some of the values and virtues, you know, at least idealised Greek warriors were meant to have, certain ideas of heroism and courage and discipline and self-sacrifice. Now, I don't want to stress the connections too much. You know, there are obviously very big differences between Greek athletic practice and actual fighting. But I would say that there's much more overlap than there is, for example, between modern warfare and modern sport. The two areas of activity do overlap. So that's one example of form of wargaming. Another example, just kind of staying with the idea of wargaming as kind of something for leisure or a spectator sport. On the Roman side of things, you get gladiatorial contests in the Colosseum, most famously in Rome, but in all sorts of other amphitheatres and so on around the Roman Empire. And, and we know that the earliest types of gladiator, for example, were named after Rome's enemies. So you had the Samnite or the Gaul or the Thracian gladiator. And there were very strong rules of combat and ideas also about how a gladiator ought to accept defeat, not cry for mercy, not cry out at the point of death and so on. So there again, you can see as a sort of form of entertainment, it's not war that's on display, but it's it's models of fighting and, and actually models of heroism and combat, playing by the rules and so on, that again overlap with actual warfare. And also the Romans enjoyed staging occasionally naumachia, so naval battles. So the earliest one we know about was staged by Julius Caesar. He dug a massive basin near the river Tiber outside Rome and 2,000 combatants and, and many other people kind of rowing these big ships and other emperors staged these battles too. And they were reconstructing historic sea battles. So, you know, the Persians against the Athenians was one that Augustus staged. And I think one important thing to mention here is that the people involved in these performances fought to the death. So you're not watching simply a kind of pretend reenactment. And the people involved are prisoners of war often or, or slaves or prisoners of some form or another. I particularly like the, the idea of entertainment as modeling values for war as well. One of the things that fascinates me about simulations is that very thing of, of like, you know that this is a copy, but it's also so very real. And as you were saying, that reality was a lot more physical for the people, the ancient world, than it is certainly for those of us who are doing simulations over the computer now. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think you've put your finger on it. There's absolutely nothing virtual about watching gladiators die in the arena or watching you know, people in a Namakia fight to the death. There's nothing virtual about that. There were slightly more virtual forms of wargaming, though, in the ancient world. So on the kind of more practical side, on the training side, we've got, for example, a fantastic 
speech that was given by the Emperor Hadrian at a parade ground in North Africa in a place called Lambysis, where part of the Roman army was stationed in around 128 AD. And we've got this speech because it was then inscribed on a monument that commemorated his visit to this parade ground. And what we see there is he's commenting on several days worth of maneuvers that he watched the Roman army perform. And so these maneuvers are part of their kind of training and part of their practice, but very much also a performance performed for the emperor and other visiting dignitaries and probably not just Roman people as well. You know, this is actually the Roman Roman power on display, perhaps to locals too. So there you see a sort of a virtual exercise, a maneuver, a kind of war game that's performed for a particular purpose, for a training purpose. But again, as you say, Catherine, it's blurring the boundaries between the real and the imagined, looking ahead to sort of successful future encounters. And then you also get kind of textual wargaming in the ancient world. You get simulations on paper. So we get lots of, we have lots of surviving ancient military manuals and handbooks, which set out, for example, diagrams and visualize tactical maneuvers. And then we've also got lots of historical accounts as well, which explain who did what when. And then we've got a few texts that are really a fantastic mix of this. So one that I am thinking of is a text by Frontinus called The Stratagemeter. And it's a collection of over 500 historical anecdotes, really very short, that are sort of ruses that generals from all around the ancient Mediterranean world did. And they're organized into little categories like how you find out the enemy's plans or how you keep the morale of your men going or how you choose a time and place for battle. But it doesn't give rules, it just gives lots of little examples. And there's a kind of bewildering array of examples and possibilities that build up. And what the hex does as a whole, with these sort of 500 plus examples, is it kind of simulates the experience of being a general. So you read all of these different examples and different options as a sort of an armchair general or a general who's actually trying to learn from this. You sit there thinking, gosh, I wonder what I would do. And it's that sort of textual simulation that delivers the experience that you need to have of choosing between the options, selecting the right kind of ruse, making good strategic decisions and so on. So I think it's not a war game as we would recognize it, but it is a form of simulation, a form of playing at war on paper that embeds and perpetuates certain ideas about generalship, being something that's full of genius and cunning and allows readers, whoever they may be, to gain more a little bit themselves. I think that's super interesting. Actually, leads really neatly onto my question for you, Aggie, because it, it seems as though the format may have changed wildly in what Alice has been talking about now. The purpose of these simulations seems to be a kind of planning for the future. Is, is this resonating with how modern war games are used? So to what purposes and functions are modern war games used and where, to your mind, Aggie, lies the line between military and entertainment war games? Thanks very much. And this is such a fascinating discussion already. It's so interesting to hear about this other historical site about which I, I don't know very much at all. So that's fantastic. My sense, drawing some of what Alice has said together, is that we can begin, I think, from this claim that war games are at once and paradoxically real, unreal and hyper real. In fact, productive of realities. They, they do strange things with epistemology and ontology, which we'll talk about a bit, a bit more later. Um, I want to give a brief potted history um, of wargaming um, in the modern period, at least in the Western world. Uh, as Alice quite rightly said, gaming has happened kind of globally all over the place for many millennia. Uh, but my own research is, is located in the Anglo-American and European environments. 
So from about the 19th century uh, in the Western world, wargaming really comes to the fore in Prussia. In the 1820s, an army officer by the name of Georg von Reiswitz presents a game to the general staff um, of the army. And this becomes part of professional military education quite quickly. His game was known as Kriegspiel. It was based on chess. But instead of using a grid, um, they used a kind of map to model terrain on which to simulate field battles. And this quickly uh, proliferated across the, the Prussian army uh, and from about the 1870s, more internationally, due in part to Prussia's success. Uh, so the story goes with the war in France. In the 20th century, we see this taking off both as a recreational and also a military artifact in many ways. Even pacifists like H.G. Wells become enamored of wargaming. His text for his game Little Wars in, in the 1910s becomes quite a, a central manifestation of this. And by about the mid-20th century, really across the Anglo-American and European worlds, we see this really proliferating. It's used on both sides by both the Allied and the Axis powers in World War II. Often hyperbolically, it's said that with the exception of kamikaze tactics, there was nothing that the Japanese did that the US naval wargaming uh, activities hadn't simulated in advance. Can't vouch for the historical accuracy of that, but that's one of the indicative stories that circulate. And so we see the heyday of wargaming, paper wargaming, cards, counters, and, and analog artifacts in about the 1970s. If you looked to any officers, downtime environments, mess halls, and uh, and barracks, you would see wargaming being played uh, across the different levels of service. And this is in part because, and I think this speaks back to Alice's point, of their capacity not just to entertain and, and relive famous battles, but actually to cultivate what people call synthetic experience. And this goes back to this question of hyper-real, unreal, and unreal. Um, the game, of course, is, is both real and unreal, but the experience that the game generates, facilitates, is, is real in a very literal sense, whether it's the cultivation of mental and physical muscle memory, whether it's about strategic intuition and, and all of these other skills that, of course, are at the heart of military education and training. I'll jump forward in time a little bit. Um, we see, of course, the rise of uh, the technological kind of revolution of the 1980s onwards. And actually, interestingly, in this period, wargaming falls out of fashion in favor of the kind of more operations, model and simulation research associated with the, the McNamara period. And in this context, wargaming is actually seen as too subjective, insufficiently scientific, um, unable to be objective or predict and provide the sorts of data that these more scientific uh, modes of modeling and simulation claimed. The extent to which those approaches were ever as successful in doing that as they claimed is, of course, another question that I'm, I'm currently doing some research on. So fast forward quickly again to the 21st century, and we've seen, of course, the explosion of war games across all sorts of sectors, leisure, government, healthcare, employment, advertising, education at both school and university levels, and beyond. This, of course, depends a little bit on your description or your definition of wargaming. Some would say it has to involve conflict per se. Others would say simply you need a relation of antagonism or a win state or the cultivation of, of victory conditions for it to qualify. But my own research over the last four or five years has really focused on what people are now calling a renaissance in US military wargaming since about 2014. And so gaming really has exploded across the military, across everything from recruitment to strategic and tactical rehearsal, weapons and vehicles training, even things like language and cultural sensitivity training. If you can gamify particular kinds of tasks, um, the argument goes, uh, A, they're more cost effective, B, you draw in and retain people's uh, engagement. So my own work as part of the King's Wargaming Network that we set up two years ago or so, um, is that we're really kind of on the cusp of trying to pull together all of these new uses and all of these new applications of wargaming to create a kind of academic discipline or an academic subfield. That's sort of what we are doing and what we've been up to. 
So, Aggie, what you're saying is just so fascinating. I was really particularly interested, actually, in what you said. There have been these trends where people have thought that wargaming at times can be too subjective. You know, I almost get the impression in the 1800s and in the ancient world, at least in Frontinus's day, that chance, unpredictability are precisely the reason why you need to game war because of the sort of the synthetic experience. So I was just wondering if you could unpack that a tiny bit more. How do these oscillations in these trends work? Is there a sense when wargaming is thought as too subjective that people have also started to think that war is more predictable suddenly again? That's a fascinating question. Thanks, Alice. I mean, I think one of the key things, actually, is is what you just said at the end there, this question of prediction. I think you can organise this controversy around the question of prediction, because actually the the really established generation of wargamers now, those who are really the, the masters at the top of their craft, they are extremely suspicious of any claim that wargaming might be predictive that you could play out a particular conflict, you could try to you know, do a crisis response, and that that somehow would then correspond to the real world if that then happened in the future. They are extremely sceptical, for the most part, of that claim. Um, and yet, very interestingly, this is one of the reasons that people have historically, at least in the heyday of modelling and simulation, which claimed this predictive capacity because it evacuated the human from the loop. It, it claimed to kind of write out the messy business of subjectivity and human decision making. What really happened, I think, is that the limitations of those methods were beginning to become clear. You've seen the movie War Games, presumably, where actually the machine or the simulation or the model isn't all powerful. It doesn't very effectively predict what's going to happen at all. And so then we get back to these more sort of early modern or, or maybe ancient emphases on, on developing intuition, on developing subjective interpretive capacities and actually that being the point both of wargaming but also the kind of value added that can be brought through this this mode of practice or this experiential endeavor so I think it's a very interesting epistemological debate that goes on you mentioned as well a little bit earlier on the idea of wargames as as something that's being used for recruitment but I, I have a little anecdote if I may A few years ago, when I was doing some research, back when I was writing my PhD, I attended something called Gamescom in Cologne, Germany. And I was walking around and I was observing everyone and I was taking note of all these huge posters with heroism and valor and all of these people walking around with soldier costumes. And and then I noticed that there were some soldiers who were walking around without guns. And I thought, interesting. And then it turned out that those were actual soldiers from the German army who had a stand there with a big tank. And I went up to talk to them and I was like, what, what, are, you, what are you doing here? And obviously they were there to recruit. But the line they gave was, uh, oh, gamers are so good with technology. So we could re- really use people who are good with technology, which I suppose is true. But there was also quite a clear sense to me that there was something beyond that, that they were trying to reach to people who might already have a, a applicable experience. And, and obviously, like the, there's a lot of comparisons being made between war games and war as entertainment, specifically in games. And I was wondering, what does it mean for war to be visualized as entertainment and then to be enacted by soldiers? Just that second part of, of the question, and I think it speaks also, Katerina, to your, your follow-up point here about, about recruitment and this blurring line. So, so I think you know, most people would acknowledge already that, that the line is very blurred here between where militarised activities stop. Um, we've got good research on IR, which says actually we ought to even forget the language of militarisation because our, our present is martial already. And the idea that 
you have a safe civilian world over here is, is a misnomer. But I think I want to just point to three particular ways in which this line is blurred. The first, and this I think will speak to this, this point about recruitment, is firstly how they're produced. Um, so there are enormous overlaps currently um, around and, and mutual independent interdependence between the commercial and military gaming sectors. And this is in fact an explicit part of this thing called the third offset strategy. Uh, which I mentioned earlier, an explicit attempt in the course of this strategy in the mid 2015 16 time um, was to really explicitly try to leverage the technologies, the skills, and also actually designers and contractors from Silicon Valley and repurpose these artifacts, these techniques, these everything from software to hardware. And this is because in many ways, the commercial sector is now leading the way. The military is now repurposing commercially produced games, uh, which is a real inversion from earlier periods where military artifacts were being then turned into toys, turned into recreational activities. And this, I think, in part has to do with much higher R&D budgets in the commercial sector and so on. So I think that's one way that the line is blurred, sort of how they're produced. A second blurring is how they're used. And I think this is really fascinating. So the very same games can often be used for actually entirely contradictory purposes. So you can take, for instance, the example of games that are used to train soldiers in, or warfighters in particular kinds of kind of combat activities. Oftentimes, those very same games are then repurposed for therapeutic tools to rehabilitate people, to take people back into conflict zones in which they had sites of, of trauma uh, kind of take place. And, and this, again, really blurs the line. You see, also, you see contradictions when people are on deployment. You see people using recreational games to pass the time when they're in military environments, having to manage uh, all of the difficult things that come with that. And you see recruitment games also being used as a leisure thing. America's Army, of course, would be the kind of quintessential example of this, that something that appeared to be a recreational game was actually a strategic communication device, something which was developed by the US Army to boost dwindling recruitment numbers. Many analysts claim that this is one of the most successful recruiting tools that, that the US military has seen in many years. One final blurring here, uh, and that's how games work. There is a, a blurring of the lines between military and, uh, and ed entertainment games because they actually work in extremely similar ways. The, the difference I would say is that military games, broadly speaking, are a means to an end. They are used because there is a goal in mind a given objective, imparting a skill, experimentation, research, whereas a commercial game broadly is an end in itself, it's just for fun. But they work in a very similar way. They work by harnessing play. They work by being fun. They work by uh, finding this compulsion towards victory or a win state of some kind, or maybe just not losing, depending on how victory conditions are construed. And they also work by suspending players in this unreflexive state of immersion about which I'd like to talk a bit later, so as to cultivate new reflexes to develop mental and physical muscle memory. So in that sense, really, the question is not how are they different? The question really is, are they distinguishable at all? In many ways, not so much. I find this so fascinating, Aggie, because again, it resonates so much with what I see in, for example, Frontinus' Stratagemata. Now, at that point in time, the Codex, the, the book as we know it, was an incredibly new kind of technology <laughs> compared with the scroll. Um, so you've got this new technology, but absolutely, it's something that can have a practical function and can teach muscle memory in a practical way, but it's also fun and engaging and can involve armchair historians or armchair generals in play and all of that as you say blurs the boundaries between civilian and military between military and non-military thinking I do have a question though just coming back to one or two of the things that you've said you mentioned the use of wargaming for example to help veterans in their rehabilitation and that makes me again think of actually something I've read by Anders Engberg-Pedersen about the way in which wargames 
don't just train cognitive abilities, so the muscle memory, but actually help to train emotions. Is that something that you know much about and have seen in your work? Yes, absolutely. I think you're hitting the nail on the head there. So many in the, the professional wargaming community appeal to um, Bloom's taxonomy of learning domains. And Bloom's taxonomy distinguishes, amongst other things, between the cognitive realm, which has to do with you know, thinking and processing and, and all that stuff, and the affective register, which has to do with values, beliefs, emotion, all of that stuff. And they're very explicit that actually the point of wargaming is to do both. The value added of wargaming is that it actually can change hearts and minds. It can both create and uh, in some ways, uh, at least the argument goes, help cure you know, some of these problems. I'm, I'm writing a piece currently with a fabulous colleague in the States, uh, Professor Larry George, on this idea of what we call pharmacotic wargaming. As a classicist, Alice, that might be relevant to you, that actually wargaming can actually function simultaneously as, as poison and cure. We have a tripartite framing which has to do with it functioning both as an addictive drug in terms of how it recruits as a kind of poison in the sense that it can lead people into situations where they're harmed through training or deployment, and also then a kind of paradoxical and limited cure for precisely those ills. But I, I think that's fascinating. Thanks very much. I mean, I think all of this is so fascinating. And on the topic of the effective power of, of games and of war games, particularly, we, we will touch on that in, in greater depth a little bit later on as well. On the topic of war as, as entertainment, and I think also resonating what Alice and, and Aggie have, have said previously in, in a few different ways. One aspect that we haven't discussed so far at all is, is tabletop wargaming. And Aris, you have a lot of experience in this. And so I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how tabletop war games produce and or reproduce wars. Thank you very much. Yes, so it's interesting. My background in tabletop wargaming is much more as a fan rather than it's entirely non-academic. So it's everything that I've heard here is very interesting and it's a very interesting insight into what I've been doing for a few years. One thing I'd like to focus on is so the tabletop war games I'm mostly interested in are sci-fi and fantasy. One interesting thing that came up in, in what Alice was saying, in, and if, if she doesn't mind if I quote her, is that it really see a continuation from, from ancient times to now. And what we do is basically it simulates the experience of being a general because we're there with our army and we try and win a battle. So it is a form of entertainment, but I think the main selling point it has for us is the strategy aspect. So we get together, it's usually a battle between two players. We have the random dice effect, which I think it's necessary in these types of games. And you just have a lovely little battle that lasts around four hours with incredibly intricate rules. During the battle, you really, really focus on the strategy. So it's a very odd type of entertainment, I find. It is a way that we reproduce wars and battles in in a very odd way. So as I play um, sci-fi and fantasy games, I might as well explain how it's done. So we have a big table with some very nice terrain on it. And then you have your own hand-painted miniatures and you have a big army. You choose the units that you want for that specific game and you play a battle using dice and a measuring tape. Those are your main tools. So we reproduce a battle in that way. And if one is playing a sort of narrative line of games, reproduces a whole war. So we do that in a sci-fi game or a fantasy game, but I have quite a few friends who like playing World War II games, so they play various historical battles. But the interesting thing is that the outcome is not necessarily the historic accurate outcome. It can be whatever happens during the game. I think that another interesting aspect is generally with tabletop war game fans, there does tend to be a deep interest in military history. 
I've seen and myself have quite a few players being interested in military tactics in general and then trying to use them in their own battles. I'm not sure how well that actually works, but it is a very interesting correlation between the two. And yes, the, the whole reason that we play, as as was said earlier, compulsion pouring, and that's what brings it close to military games, as I was saying. Well, I suppose the question that I've got, Aris, is you said that this minifigure tabletop wargaming really gets you thinking strategically. And I suppose my question is whether it promotes a sort of a mirage of strategic thinking rather than strategic thinking per se, if you see what I mean. So yes, there's the role of the dice, presumably, which adds in an element of chance and there's there's the opponent and so on. But what, you know, generals have to wrestle with all sorts of other problems like... Mm-hmm people falling ill or or equipment failing or um, all sorts of other things. And so I'm just wondering whether these games give you a very rarefied experience of strategic thinking and how that actually maps onto real strategic thinking and the messiness of it and the, the unpredictability and so on. Thank you very much for that, Alice. Uh, so I think it's strategic thinking that's isolated within the game system that one's playing. So you've got a very specific set of rules. There are quite a few different game systems. There's one dominant one that's been used for the past, I think since the 80s, which changes every four years. But yes, it is very isolated in its own rules and own sort of issues that arise during the battle. So you don't have things that a, a real general will come up with, like illness, starvation, or anything like that. It's just the way I imagine it is you take away everything and it's just the soldiers fighting the battle and that's it. Just to come in on, on this a little bit, it's, it's so fascinating. Thanks, Aris. To sort of scale upwards a bit from tabletop games to, to the other kinds of games that we might also consider. There are actually quite a lot of examples, Alice, of, of those kinds of questions and, and concerns being brought in, particularly when you scale up to things like computer-assisted command post exercises, which are highly elaborate, gamified crisis response scenarios. Uh, I was lucky to lucky enough to go to a couple uh, in 20, uh, 2017 and 2018, I think, the Udabias exercise, uh, and the, the Viking exercise over in Sweden. And one of the most fascinating things about that is that you have training and, and gaming going on at multiple levels simultaneously. So you're not quite sure who the training audience is. You've got people who are controlling and commanding and doing the strategic thinking that Aris is talking about. You've also got people who are carrying out their day jobs in this sort of simulated environment. But you also oftentimes have things like international institutions. You might have the Red Cross represented. You might have civilian advocacy groups represented. You might have uh, all manner of, of different um, kind of agencies or, or actors involved. And, and this I think it gets us away from, from that sort of strategic center. But I think it's fascinating to think about how those concerns have been brought in. Does that fundamentally adequately bring in ethical questions? Or is there something about the game logic itself, which is necessarily maybe because of its win condition orientation or something like that? Is it necessarily in tension with those kinds of ethical concerns? Because there is this agenda really at the heart of how a game works mechanically. Of course, there are many indie games that subvert this in very interesting ways as well that we could consider. I think there are so many super interesting strands that are going on here. I want to see if I can pluck on them a little bit, because I think... So, so much of what you were saying, Aris, I find really, really interesting. So both the idea of reproducing war in a way that we are familiar with, but in a sci-fi and fantasy setting, and this 
idea of these strict rules coupled with the roll of the dice and the attempt to reproduce the kind of chaos and fog of war in that sense, but also then this this focus on the rules of war, the the, the rule book, the idea perhaps of a, a classically just war. And all of this speaks to me of a focus on reproducing the experience of war and what we want to believe the experience of war is. And so I was wondering if, if maybe you could unpack a little bit further what values are expressed in, in this. What does this tell us about how war is communicated to us as a culture? Let's take the example of Warhammer. There's a very big background. Uh, they have their own library, they have their own publishing house called the Black Library, and they publish a lot of novels based in the world where you play your battles. And in that world, it's called Warhammer 40,000. It's set 40,000 years in the future. And it's an extremely bleak world. Everyone dies all the time. Life is very cheap. Humanity has managed to conquer a big part of the galaxy. They're in their trillions, but they're also dying in their trillions. So so it's, it's through that specific game system, which is the dominant one, they've sort of managed to make you, in a way, not really care about the casualties, in a way. Um, so you're just there, you're just playing a battle. Most of your miniature army will die. You'll, you may start with 80 miniatures on the board. You might le be left with two, and that will be absolutely fine. You, it doesn't really make you think of the ethical consequences that your war has. In, in this sense, this, I mean, I know dystopianism is something that you are very well versed in. And I sort of wonder then if these are kind of dystopian ideas of war. Oh, yes, entirely. I think that dystopia is the, the one, one thing that they do is that they, they produce an image of the future based on, on existing realities or whatever is going on in your own context. So it projects... Though the bleakest image and these war games, or at least the sci-fi ones, seem to have a tendency to do that, to, to project a very, very bleak image of the future. I, I find this really fascinating, this sort of sense that you might be kind of looking so far forward in time that, that perhaps there is an element of emotional detachment. And you mentioned earlier, actually, that you particularly prefer playing sci-fi tabletop games but there is a contingent who enjoy playing World War II versions of that and actually maybe kind of getting history to sort of end differently every so often in a battle and I think that's really fascinating because most of us still know someone who in some way was touched by World War II so I, I wonder if you know presumably there is a very different connection that people have to World War II um, so just be interesting to hear a bit more about that, but also what you were saying about the sort of the gaming that goes far into the future makes me think about the gaming that also looks into the distant past, into the ancient world. And I think one of the worries I sometimes have actually about war games that are set in ancient Greece or Rome is again, the sense that the distance in time allows people to forget that they were really people. Um, and yeah, so I was just wondering if you've noticed in your game playing yourself or in the communities that you've done this in, different attitudes to different time periods where people engage differently with wars depending on how close in time or how historical they actually feel. Yeah, it is true, I think, with games that go further back, like Ancient Greece, Ancient Rome, there, there is a complete detachment between the ethical aspect of it. Um, but I think with um, World War II games, it is interesting because it should be far more connected to, to their own sort of ideas than it actually is, if that makes sense. 
So I've seen it, it, one interesting thing I've seen is that a lot of people who actually are in the army play tabletop war games, and quite a few of them, at least in the circles I've been in, play the the, the World War Two ones. But they seem to continue this sort of disassociation between the ethical and, and the actual battle that they're playing. And I do wonder if that's the entertainment aspect coming in and thinking, I'm trying to have fun, I won't really care about the difficult things. Uh, I think it's so fascinating because on this question of time, I think it was James Dunnigan, a veteran designer, who, who called war games paper time machines, uh, which I think is just a wonderful description of his capacity to, to launch back and forward across these temporal kind of uh, spectra. Um, but I'll, I just wanted to note that. That's a really good line, paper time machines. I like that. But yeah, this is actually a really good segue, I think, to talking a little bit more about how the, the, the entertainment aspect of this kind of work on the body, I suppose. So what does it mean for war to be visualized as entertainment and then to be enacted by soldiers? War games, as well as war and games in, in general, are very effective, which is to say that they're good at making us feel emotionally and physically. How do war games make us feel war and what does that mean? So on, on that note, Aggie, to your mind, how do war games affect and create the martial body? Thanks, Katerina. It's a, it's a fabulous question. I'll zoom out for a moment and then back in again. So I think we need to think about games as um, ontologically unstable things. They are at once communication devices. They are sociological artifacts that tell us something about a culture or a time. They are experiential phenomena that are affective and embodied in a whole bunch of ways. And they are also a manifestation of power relations. In a sense, we can think of them as a kind of a mind map that is modeled to function interactively. And this, I think, is, is really crucial because what sets wargaming apart from things like modeling and simulation is this question of having a human in the loop. Uh, if there's not a human in the loop, according to most in the professional wargaming community, then it's not a game. It's something else. It's a model. And the reason that this is so crucial is that gaming is about decision-making, whether we're talking about the strategic kind of board games that, that Aris is discussing, uh, or indeed perhaps even of the uh, medieval or, or ancient games that, that Alice was discussing, that you have to have this capacity for meaningful decision-making and kind of interactivity, even if the interactivity is just with the game itself. And so this works, to zoom in a little bit more now, for my money, there are three key dimensions to how this process works. And these are, first of all, play, uh, if you want to understand gaming, you need to understand a bit about play. Second of all, this idea of a, a, a drive to win, not the win itself, but the pursuit or the compulsion towards victory conditions. And thirdly, the experience of immersion, which I'll get to in a moment. So I just want to say a little bit about each of these in turn. Really, for my money, it's the interaction of these three things that really work to subjectify warfighters and help to affectively produce martial bodies, both within the military, but also, of course, as we've been saying, outside of it in the recreational and entertainment uh, spheres. So to turn to play, first of all, as I say, if you want to understand games, you've got to know a little bit about play. I've spent the last few years uh, immersing myself in, uh, in this literature, and it's been really, really fun, really exciting. And so that's kind of why I want to start with, with play. Why do we find what we find fun? What, what is it about it that is so kind of pleasurable or pleasing or affirming? And so here I want to draw a distinction between play and the game, because in many ways, we often think about them as, as interchangeable or, or closely related. But I want to, to suggest that actually they are kind of in tension with each other in some interesting ways. Play, I think we can read as a force, an impulse, a tendency, whereas a game is a structure, a system, a rule set which contains and delimits and directs play. 
So play is something that spontaneously arises in, in people and indeed in non-human animals. But a game is something much more a structure. It's something that is kind of created in a different way. For many, this uh, the construction of games, the, the rules and the systems that games provide are themselves fun. People actually take quite a lot of pleasure in the relief that having a fixed state of rules actually provides for them. I think this uh, links back to what Aris was saying, that a structure of rules is actually a liberation from contradiction, from the, the burden of decision making. Some in the literature talk about offloading the cognitive burden, which I myself find somewhat troubling, um, but we'll get to that shortly. So I think this question of the relationship between play and games is fascinating because for me, play and the games through which uh, it's channeled are, is a site of, of subjectification. People are produced through uh, this engaging kind of play phenomenon. Now, how does this work? What drives this fun? I've mentioned some dimensions already. For my money, I think we need to think here also about this idea of winning. And so the, the second part of this, I think, is that you have to have as a game this kind of pursuit of victory conditions. Uh, winning for me is not about um, the end state, but rather I think we can understand winning as a kind of perpetual motion driver. People are affectively produced through games because winning doesn't lead to resolution. Uh, you win a game, that doesn't mean, just like an artist doesn't just you know, put away their brushes when they, they finish a picture, they start the next one. So, so too happens with, with games. Um, you have this relation of antagonism, even if your enemy is, is a crisis or a natural disaster, whatever it may be. But without this win state or this pursuit of victory conditions, the game doesn't happen. And so the affective production of, of the military body or subjectivity does not take place. So as part of my research, I've been trying to think about this desire to win. Where does it come from? Some people say it's natural, it's built in. I'm quite suspicious of those kinds of claims. I think of them much more as bound up with power relations, with socializations, with masculinities and heteronormativities and a whole bunch of other power relations that we might consider, capitalism, militarism, and so on. And I think what's really interesting here, Mackenzie Walk talks about the gamer as Sisyphus here, that actually the pursuit of victory conditions is this perpetual rolling of the, the boulder up the hill. But this is, of course, a very powerful tool because it doesn't end. It's this, as I say, perpetual motion device. What also goes on here, I think, uh, and this goes back to Alice's point about ethics, is that there is oftentimes a sort of sleight of hand that takes place. Players think they're playing a game to win. Oftentimes this is true in the context of military training or education. But actually, those people using the game as a teaching or training tool are, are not at all interested in the win state, who, 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 who is victorious in the end. Rather, it's about the process. So really winning matters not as a result, but as this perpetual motion driver to draw people in. And just finally, this then links to this question of uh, immersion. There are various theorizations of this. You can turn to Csikszentmihalyi's analysis of flow very famously. Paulo Freire talks about uh, animals and how they don't consider the world because they're immersed in it. Uh, Johann Heisinger, of course, talks about when you're in a game being under a spell, that you're utterly absorbed, that you abandon your body and soul to the game. And I think my own research on, on this has, has drawn out some continuities with these various uh, theorizations, that games bring about a kind of complete and exclusive focus. If you get distracted, if someone knocks on the door, or if power goes out, suddenly the game ends, you're, you're drawn back to reality. People talk about a kind of unification of stimulus and response. So it's a non-contradictory world. You have both a diminished consciousness of self, you take on the role of your avatar or your character or your, your other kind of uh, role, and this, paradoxically, you can see this take place when players begin to use the first person, I, for their avatar. Almost their own, their own self is diminished. They come to embody and act uh, cognitively and affectively as though they were this other uh, entity. 
one interesting other kind of dimension to this, I think, is it's a logic of non-contradiction that within a game, the immersive spell is broken if you are forced to think about power relations, ethics, something which is uh, un unsettling or brings you with a bump down back to reality. And so part of my own research has been thinking about how might we think about the politics of immersion in this context. If immersion is indeed a non-reflective state, what does that mean to use it as a teaching tool when we think about relationships pedagogically between teachers and learners or trainers and trainees? If we go somewhere else when we play, what do we learn when we're there? And what does it mean to use this non-reflective place to impart information to instill combat skills or doctrine from a military perspective? And what does this mean for the ethical and pedagogical relationship between instructor and learner? It certainly, to my mind, seems to reify or rely upon a kind of problematic one-directional flow. So I think there are various implications here. I think the production of, of martial bodies and, and, and militarized subjectivities through gaming, I, I think we do need to bring in the kinds of ethical questions that Alice is, is raising. To what extent can these kind of conformist tendencies be challenged? Uh, are they a structural condition of wargaming as such, or can we actually subvert them or challenge them from within? And of course, you have very different views on this. If you go back to some of the kind of phenomenologists like uh, Hansel Gadamer, he says, and I love this quote, he says that all playing is a being played. The fascination it exerts consists precisely in the fact that the game masters the player. John Protevi very interestingly talks about the de-subjectified state that people get into in this context. And the upshot of that seems to be that the player becomes the object rather than the subject of this process. Again, something which is ethically problematic. So what I do in, in the book and what, what I'm still trying to sort of fully kind of write up and, and finish off is, is what might it mean to play deconstructively? And there are many other interesting analyses of kind of critical play, counter hegemonic play, uh, feminist play, uh, queer play, all of these different ways of engaging with game artifacts. So I don't have that much time for critiques of war games, which are about, you know, we shouldn't play particular games. I'm much, much more interested in how we play those games. And I advocate something that I'm, I'm coining uh, deconstructive play. How do we punctuate immersion with critical reflexivity? Of course, some indie games already do this, but this of course runs against the vast majority of both commercial and military wargaming for the reasons that, that Aris and, and Alice have already um, alluded to. And one other site of kind of resistance to this that I want to, to mention, and I've been interviewing various veterans groups and thinking about how they use games as a form of resistance, but not a form of resistance which rejects militarism or, or the martial body. And I think this goes back to, to these questions of everyday resistance that James Scott and others have conceptualized. So I've just written up a piece which thinks about the kind of the ludic recovery and everyday resistance at work in uh, activities such as those done by a group called stackup.org, uh, run by a former army officer, captain, I believe, a veterans group which is about community building and mutual assistance and suicide prevention, and actually subverts some of the problematic sides of gaming whilst using those very same artifacts. So you know, they supply crates and, and games to deployed servicemen and, and women and veterans. And oftentimes they are asked for, you know, Call of Duty and, and very sort of first person shooter and highly militarized games. And yet in the course of playing these games, people feel comfortable enough to confess uh, how they're feeling and, and, and explain that they're having, you know, issues with depression or, or trauma symptoms or PTSD. And so it's so fascinating to see that how you play these games, the kinds of communication they open up, um, really far exceed a kind of narrow critique of, of their content. 
So, Adi, there was so much that was really interesting in that, but I think I was particularly interested in you know, what you were saying towards the end about the, the way in which games play us, and that got me thinking about the cultural structures that play us. And it sort of goes back also to what you were saying about games often, I suppose, leveraging, but also inculcating a desire to win. Not only mirrors aspects of ancient warfare, but but supports it insofar as it really, really promotes this idea of of absolute excelling in physical terms and beating your opponents and achieving glory. And so that's a form of gaming, I suppose, that that really does play the gamer. Um, and you know, similarly, gladiators. You know, what happens if you lose? Well, you die. Right. So written into that game as well is, is a, such a high stakes scenario, which in turn then kind of, I suppose, helps create the martial body and create a culture of warfare and a culture that supports ideas of self-sacrifice, supports ideas of giving it your all in the ancient world so that you might actually achieve posthumous glory, even if you fall on your sword and die, like the glory that surmounts death. So I just was really interested in then thinking about the way in which games, both ancient and modern, tap into very particular ideas of what it means to win. I think quite a lot of what we're talking about here is more tactics than strategy. And, and certainly one of our colleagues in St Andrews, Phil O'Brien, I think would probably want to make that distinction and would argue that grand strategy, that strategy at the highest level, the best kind of grand strategy prevents any form of military activity at all. And so the win there ought to be not getting into battle. Whereas I think some of the games that we're talking about perhaps promote a kind of winning that is focused around tactics and is focused around kind of individualistic glory or individualistic success or at least survival somehow. And we might want to look really hard at the culture of winning that these games both tap into and promote. I mean, one, one thing that I find very interesting about listening to all three of you talk is that all of you have mentioned the phrase compunction to victory quite a few times, actually, which, yeah, is, is, is exactly um, playing into what you were saying, Alice. I mean, just, just on that, if I may, I think my interviews were characterised by diversity of responses in most sectors, apart from when it came to, to this. Almost nobody, and I did, I think, over 70 interviews, everybody agreed that, that winning was key and everybody attributed that winning imperative to something natural or innate. Humans are just like this. Some people framed it in a you know, caveman way that from prehistory, survival of the fittest, a kind of you know, Darwinian uh, style argument. Others sort of framed it in, in different ways. But what was really interesting to me was that nobody thought it necessary to question where the account of winning that seems to be baked into quite a lot of wargaming comes from. And that prompted me to <laughs> write a chapter on it for the book, because uh, I, I think that's extremely interesting. One of the contrary wise theorizations that I think might be quite useful here is Judas Jack Halberstam's notion of the queer art of failure. What does it mean to actually problematize some of these kind of win imperatives? You know, we live in a world now where we're all expected to be auto entrepreneurs and succeeded everything and be on the go, you know, 25 hours a day, of course, which, you know, there aren't. And, and what does it mean to become ambivalent about that demand politically, socially, interpersonally? And so my sense of this is, is that games should always be used, whether in an officially kind of, you know, university environment or, or anywhere else, be treated as a kind of object of inquiry, that actually one should be a, a co-designer, one should be a, a critic, one should never just play according to the rules. And this does sit in tension with quite a lot of the, the military professional gaming community. They have an explicit phrase, which is don't fight the scenario, by which they mean 
here are your motivations, here are your rules, go along with it. And that's because, as I said earlier, there are certain objectives in mind. Um, my two cents, and I talk often at uh, professional wargaming conferences as much as sort of IR and academic conferences, is to say that actually I think we can only improve things by integrating more critical reflection, less deterministic forms of gaming. The extent to which that deals with the problem of, of militarism as such, of course, is another story. It also strikes me as, as slightly ironic that victory should be the end-all and be-all of, of war games when surely part of the purpose of them is that it is safe to fail and that we learn by failing. Just to jump in on that, but I think it's, it's also worth mentioning that it's differently safe to fail and oftentimes not, <laughs> particularly in the context of the kinds of games that Alice was talking about where it was <laughs> lethal to fail. But also in the context, some of my interviewees were talking about, and this I think was also true for some of what happened in the mid-20th century when people were trained up you know, between the First and Second World Wars, for instance, where budgets were low, you couldn't go on exercises. Those simulations became you know, training in many ways. Similar things have happened over the last sort of few decades in, in our epoch. And something that you see happening is that service persons will be evaluated on the basis of their performance in games and simulations and command post exercises. So in that sense, it's, it's not safe to fail. Uh, it's, not a, it's not the same as it would be in a recreational environment where you just try again. If your career trajectory or your career progression is evaluated on the basis of how you performed, then that, that changes the stakes quite considerably. Some theorists of play, I should say, that, that that might count as a game still, but it doesn't count as play if you have to, if you have to do it. If it's no longer part of the play impulse that, that Heisinger and others described, then somehow we've gone somewhere else. And that also puts this embrace of the subjectivity of the avatar by the player. It then also puts that in a slightly different perspective doesn't it if the failure of the avatar becomes the failure of the player in real life but on this notion of immersion and what you were talking about Aggie of the the need to deconstruct play because of, of the the, the non-reflexivity of immersion I find it very interesting what you've been saying about the this the, the healing poison of play that you, you can turn it on its head and use it for therapeutic purposes as well. And I was wondering if I could feed this into my next question for you, Aris, because, of course, you play these games as, as a hobby, as something that you do for fun and, and is a creative thing for you as well, because you, you paint these models and, and create all of these amazing terrains. So I was wondering if you could perhaps unpack a little for us um, what the, the creative process of painting models for war games look like Thank you very much. Yes, yeah, so it's a rather straightforward process. It's very artistic and it's like any other form of painting. You have your paintbrushes, you have the miniature you want to paint and you have the paints that you use. Now where it gets a bit more interesting, it again it depends, there's this sci-fi and historical divide. So if you want to any sort of sci-fi or fancy miniatures, you can really sort of paint them in any way you want. However, what I found really interesting with the process of painting is when it comes to historical miniatures, because there are a lot of people who not only, so let's say someone plays a World War II war game and they have miniatures and they have chosen to, the miniatures they have, they have are the German army. They don't only stop at the colours that the German army actually had. They'll find squad markings and other little tiny bits, and we're talking about 28 millimeter miniatures, so they're very tiny and very intricate detail, and they'll try to make them as historically accurate as possible. Now, there, there's actually one artist whose name eludes me. 
he has a very interesting way of painting. So he mainly paints historical tanks from various battles. He focuses so much on the realistic aspect that the weathering he does on the tanks has to coincide with the weather that, that they had on, on the battle that took place that day. So he chooses a battle, let's say um, Stalingrad, so the weathering on the tank he'll do will relate to the weather they had during that battle which is a, a very hyper-realistic way of painting. He also looks into various artillery and machine guns and looks at what type of battle damage they'll leave on the armour. And then he'll try to replicate that. So he'll say that on a very small, small tank, he'll say that this little dot here is from a 32 caliber. This is from another one. People can go really in-depth into the sort of realism in their painting, I have found. And then you have the sci-fi fantasy aspect where I find that the way it's formed, it's to be a bit over the top constantly. So even the, the scales, the heads are a tiny bit bigger because you have this sort of heroic scale where the head is always a tiny bit bigger than it should be because it, it stands out a bit more. It strikes me, um, hearing you talk about this, that, that the artistry is as immersive as the game perhaps even more so. And so you, you have this, this situation where linking back to what Aggie was talking about, you have the non-reflexivity of, of that immersion because you are literally, you're trying to replicate that reality without necessarily putting yourself in the, in the shoes of, of those who were there. But at the same time, you are thinking about it to, to such an extreme extent that you are literally deconstructing the reality. You're, you're thinking about the, the very minutiae, the kind of mud that you want to splatter, uh, or, or what does frost damage on a tank look like? Going back to that artist does the incredible battle damage on tanks, he, there's even one tutorial where he, he examined the wind and the rain and he tried to get the degrees at which the rain was falling at the exactly, exact precise angle. Um, now, I think it, it's a very... <laughs> It's a very odd understanding of, of fun, but I can see the fun in it because I spend hours doing it. And it's, and it's true that you spend a lot more hours painting than you do actually playing the war game. Um, because to play the war game, you have to have someone else. Um, you have to have all the, the right terrain. So most people I know play about once a week uh, for however many hours. The rest of the days you do spend painting in your free time. Um, so you do spend a lot more time painting. You get really immersed in what you're doing. Um, you try and make everything uniform. Um, you want them to look as, as best as possible. That does depend on the painter's abilities because it's interesting in while playing the game. You do have good and bad players, but not so much. In the painting aspect, you do have very good and very bad painters, and that's up to everyone's ability, and it's not really a problem. By painting the miniatures, it does make it far more realistic because the miniatures are originally provided a plastic with the grey colour. Uh, so by painting them, you immerse yourself far more than you would otherwise. So you have the you have the nice trees and buildings and hilltops, and then your miniatures are beautifully painted and they have bases. And if the base um, matches the terrain, it's really really immersive. It really the the painting really helps bring it to life. I find this really interesting to learn about Aris. So 
it strikes me perhaps that the painting is a sort of an extension in some ways of the storytelling that people are doing when they're actually playing the game. Would that be right? So you talked, I, I find it fascinating to learn that, uh, let's say in the sort of more sci-fi end of things, that the heroes have bigger heads. And that makes me think of ancient Greek sculptures of great warriors and athletes with their sort of massive muscles um, and, you know, sort of very, very pronounced heroic features. But also this idea, when you were talking about the person who identifies the sort of pinprick, which came from a very specific piece of equipment and then the dent, it, it reminded me a little bit of how actors sometimes like to create a backstory for the role that they're playing. And uh, that's one way of immersion and getting into it. It sounds to me like the painting is perhaps just as a part of this wider storytelling process that, that the actual play then is only a small part of. Would that be right? Yes, that's entirely right. So one of the armies I paint, it's sci-fi, but they're based on uh, Teutonic uh, knights and crusaders. Uh, so what I've done with the, their heraldry and markings is I've gone to actual crusaders, looked at their own heraldry and used that because it creates a very nice link to reality and what you're doing. And the correlation with the ancient Greek statues is very true. You do have these characters with, they're usually in armor, but they're, they're massive. They're really big, incredible muscles, slightly bigger heads so that you can see them. And yes, it's almost exactly the same as the ancient Greek statues. Thanks. This is really fascinating. And I wanted to jump in to just loop us back to Csikszentmihalyi, uh, the key theorist of, of flow, because I think it, it really resonates with what you're saying there, Aristide. You know, gaming is, is one site or, or manifestation or place where flow takes place, but actually there are, there are many, many more. Csikszentmihalyi's hides original studies in the 1970s comprised interviews with rock climbers to violin players to chess players to people engaging in these activities. And what was really interesting in his research was he actually pointed to a kind of parallel that actually what you're doing um, isn't so important. Actually, the experience of immersion across these sites is actually very, very similar. The sense of a, a suspension of self, full feedback loops of engagement and stimulus, a kind of graph which has this axis where you have stimulation on one side and boredom on the other, and you have this channel of stimulation, I suppose, which to be in a flow state has to be just so. It has to be between sort of boredom and anxiety. Um, and I think that holds just as much in the context of, of something like painting figures. And I think what that tells us, really interestingly, is that uh, and many in the wargaming the military community say this, is that actually you might think that ever more technological bells and whistles would make something more immersive, you know, AR and VR and, you know, bringing in smell and other kinds of things that, that people are doing. But actually, analogue artefacts can be uh, more immersive in some ways because of this imaginative component, because of this sense of of doing a particular kind of work in, in that context. Uh, and so it's very interesting to see how that debate plays out as well. There's also the, with the analog modes of play, the fact that you become the world builder in a very different way, particularly with the kinds of, of games that you're talking about, Aris. So I think we've covered some really interesting aspects of playing war games and, and of creating the, the world of, of the game. But I'm also interested in people who are not necessarily the players themselves. And so I think I would really like to ask you, Alice, how war games in the ancient world affected the spectators who watched and who participated? That's a great question, Katerina. And, you know, I think it's really helpful actually to go back to the ancient world to start with to answer this question. And then great to hear from Aggie and Aris again a little bit more about 
the 20th and 21st century. So in the ancient world, very few people actually participated in the kinds of games that we've been talking about. So if we're thinking back to ancient athletic contests, for example, it's very much the Greek male elite, so not the whole population by any stretch of the imagination. And then if we're thinking about gladiatorial shows or the Nomachia, it's the opposite end of the social spectrum. It is absolutely not the elite. It would be prisoners of war. It would be slaves, certainly as gladiatorial contests started. Later on, we do actually hear about some women gladiators. We hear some members of the Roman elite getting involved as gladiators, sometimes perhaps under pressure rather than um, voluntarily. And occasionally we hear of one or two Roman emperors who actually took part in very staged and absolutely not dangerous gladiatorial contests. So Commodus was one. But on the whole, it's not very many people who actively participate. And the sort of flip side of that is that very many people did spectate. So athletic contests, gladiatorial contests, or indeed just sitting around a fire and hearing someone narrate the story of the Trojan War it is very much a collective experience. It's something that involves mass participation, mass spectators, accessible to the whole citizen body, but importantly, people watching together, not people watching individually. It's clearly the case that Naumachia, gladiatorial contests and so on, were pretty popular forms of entertainment. But as I say, I think the important thing to note here is just how collective that experience was, how much of a shared experience and that entertainment and also the shared body of literature, whether it's epic poems or whether it's history writing, really builds cultural discourses that everyone shares. It contributes to ideas and ideals that reflects the whole community and also helps shape the whole community. So it's very much not an individualistic kind of wargaming and it's not immersive in the way that we might think of as tabletop wargaming or online wargaming video games. There isn't that kind of flow that you get, I, I don't think, from sitting watching a spectacle, watching a Naumachia. There's, there's an awful lot of distraction going on. What, what we do know is that in gladiatorial contests and presumably Naumachia too, that there was music in the background that helped to build a sense of climax and that at the death trumpet sounded sometimes. And so, so there are certain things that help it feel a bit more like an immersive and very climactic experience. But, you know, on the whole, it's probably also quite a rowdy and chaotic experience watching these things, more akin to going to a football match or a rugby match than sitting in a room on your own looking at a games console and actually being really profoundly involved. I just find the idea of there being background music at gladiatorial matches to be incredibly interesting. There's something very modern about that. That was uh, quite a revelation. Well, I, I suppose it's interesting because it just reveals to you that even in a gladiatorial contest, there's an element of storytelling that's being set up and that no matter who wins or who loses or what exactly happens, there are rules of combat. Um, there is actually a referee sometimes. And the whole thing is actually being staged and managed and controlled point. It isn't just a completely free-flowing thing. So it just gives you a glimpse, I suppose, of the way in which gaming war and violence in the ancient world is micromanaged in some ways and staged and not simply accidental and not just happens and, uh, uh, you know, falls out by chance. Some of what you, you said brought me back to some of what you've started talking about, which is the use of these war games as a way of showing and exemplifying values and forming those values. 
we know that spectating is is an active form of participation, even though you are watching, sitting there and, and you're having all these inputs, but you're still participating in the sense that you're, you're there physically, you're getting all of these sensory inputs. And of course, you're thinking about it and you have all the people around you who are reacting and then you can think about those reactions. And having this collective experience that is showing what kind of values you want to exemplify as, as a community. Is there also a sense in which this was a, a way of inoculating the civilian to war? I mean, I certainly don't think that it was as strategically developed like that, but it, you're absolutely not using modern language when you talk about exemplifying and, and building a set of paradigms. So actually the text that I talked about, Frontinus' Stratagemata, we call it an exemplar text. It's part of the exemplar tradition. This idea that you're canonizing a kind of set of paradigms and archetypes that's been going on right from the Iliad. Homer's epic poem about the Trojan War, it has canonized archetypes of military heroic behavior and indeed archetypes of women um, as they suffer in war by losing husbands or sons or fathers. Or, and th those archetypes continue to resonate to this day. So, you know, in all the different forms of war as play that we've talked about from the ancient world, absolutely running through them is not a deliberate, but absolutely a definite sense in which they all help to canonize paradigms, to uh, produce exemplary models, which then feed into how people feel they ought to behave, what people think soldiers are like, or what people think generals are like, what people on the field of battle think generals should be up to and how they should be thinking in sort of very ingenious ways, let's say, thanks to reading Frontinus's text. So you're absolutely right about that. And I think I'd be really interested to know whether that actually does play out with modern avatars or whether there's a sense in what in what Aris has been talking about of exemplary characters um, or at least exemplary behaviours. I'd be fascinated to hear more about how that translates into modern eras, but certainly in the ancient world. It's really it's this feedback loop between narrative and reality, the games that people play or see or watch. Um, the entertainment versions of war really do shape how people think and feel and behave when it comes to war for real. What you're saying there, I think, is incredibly interesting. And it does bring to mind what Aris was talking about earlier, this, the heroic scale of particularly sci-fi and fantasy models, figurines, as well as what Aggie was talking about earlier, about the embrace of the avatar as you're playing. So I was wondering if perhaps as some closing remarks, uh, we could share some thoughts about that. Thank you. Yes, it's, it's interesting going off what Alice said about the, the sort of heroics and in the, in the same way in, in Homer's Iliad, you have the main troops, but also you have the heroes, Achilles and Hector. In war games, especially in Warhammer, you have your main troops, but you also have your individual characters. And they're either named characters or characters you've made yourself with certain statistics, and they do have that very heroic aspect. They help your other units, they make them better, they make them faster, they make them stronger. So you really have that sort of heroic aspect, which I think helps you... Um, in a very weird way, personify yourself in, in the, you, you put yourself in the actual battle. If, you, if you've made a character with your own name, then you're in that battle fighting, even though you're the general behind the lines as well. Um, so I think, think there is a very clear link between the two. As you were posing your question, Katharina, and as you were responding, uh, Alice, it, it made me want to actually problematise the question in a typical academic fashion, particularly the second part where you ask uh, who watched and who participated 
Um, and I, I'm of the view that, in fact, being a spectator is, um, is a, a crucial participatory role, um, oftentimes in wargaming, for a series of reasons. First of all, the spectator is by no means on the outside of the game environment. Um, the spectacle is oftentimes part of the point, both for the reasons that Alice was saying, but also for, ma for many other reasons. Uh, sometimes it's about an audience, sometimes it's about other players. But spectacle and gaming, I think, go, go hand in hand. The other thing I would say, having been a spectator at uh, several gaming conferences, at command post exercises, at, at gaming uh, training events and such in, in the military context, is that it's extremely clear that even one external spectator can really change the dynamic, can really change a lot about how players play. You oftentimes see people kind of uh, displaying more bravado or playing up in certain ways. You always often see people seeming a bit resentful or uncomfortable with this idea of being kind of perceived. Um, one of the things I've noticed that I haven't yet figured out how or where to write up is the experience of being somebody watching people in a state of immersion. It feels rather intrusive. It's actually quite a private affair in some way. Uh, there are gender dynamics, other dynamics, I think, that come into play there in terms of who you are as a spectator. Um, but another reason, I think, um, that being a spectator means something other than being on the outside is that actually you find yourself drawn in, in oftentimes discomforting ways. And this goes back to the point that it's not military over here and civilian over there. So really, this, this idea of, of any externality when you're in those environments, I think, is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, I think that, uh, that those who watch uh, are, are very much also those who participate. Again, just thinking about the sort of gladiatorial example, I probably do want to stress again that, um, you know, I'm not suggesting there are really clear overlaps between ancient athletics and, and ancient gladiatorial contests and warfare. There are very, very big differences. But there, as a participant, if you're particularly cheering on, um, you know, and egging on the emperor to spare a gladiator or not to spare a gladiator, you're playing a very interesting role as a participant. Um, Aggie, what, what you were saying there and what Aris has been saying as well, just get me thinking back. We, we talked a little bit earlier about how we might want to interrogate models of winning, models of victory and how different kinds of wargaming set up certain models. And I think the capacity of war games to interrogate also models of heroism, as much as they might reinforce certain models of heroism, their capacity to interrogate them is something that I think we should celebrate and explore. Aggie, you've mentioned that there are particularly quite a lot of sort of indie war games that do this. And I, I came across one recently. It was produced actually partly as an art installation as much as a game by the Biome Project, and it's something called Killbox. There are two participants, and one is a drone operator and one is a civilian. And there's been some really interesting study about how you behave depending on which role you play first. And of course, if you play the civilian role first, you're trying to avoid being hit by a drone. And so then that kind of puts on, you know, turns on its head what you think the exemplary behavior of the drone operator really ought to be. And, uh, you know, I suppose I, I want to end just by saying that I found this conversation so fascinating and really want to find out more about the power of war games to shape our habits of visualizing and indeed prosecuting war for the better. Very, very easy to say, I think, uh, it reinforces sort of heroic values and, and very masculine values and so on. But actually, war games have a capacity to do something really quite different as well. And I think that's something that I certainly want to find out about more. And I've really enjoyed hearing from both of you about some of that um, in this conversation. I think that those are some really excellent final remarks. I want to thank you all so, so very much for an incredibly interesting conversation. We've touched on so many different points. 
I have certainly learned a lot uh, and I think our listeners will have as well. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as we have. If you want to find out more about our guests, you can find links to their social media and websites in the episode description. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed episode one of the Visualizing Strategy special, we think you would really enjoy it. Felipe Cruvinel spoke to James Fielder, Paul Weber, and Yuna Wong about the making of strategy through modern wargaming and crisis simulations. Please do tune in again next week when Alice and Nicholas will be joined by Kate McLaughlin, who will be talking about war writing. If you would like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. And if you would like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media, just search for Visualizing War, or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. This episode was a collaboration between the Strategy Bridge and Visualizing War projects at the University of St. Andrews and was made possible by the St. Andrews Restarting Interdisciplinary Research Fund. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by sound wizard Sophia Gerten. The special episodes were produced by Dr. Snea Reddy and Dr. Katarina Birkdahl. Thank you for listening. <laughs>